When his paintings were exhibited in 1866, artist Winslow Homer gained critical acclaim for picturing, and I quote, what he has seen and known, unquote. Afterward, this reputation for objectivity helped bolster the celebrated artist's long and eventually prosperous career. Focusing on Homer's representations of Virginia during the Civil War and post-Reconstruction era, today's speaker will examine the more subjective aspects, political, cultural, and personal, that informed Homer's creation of some of the most enduring images of 19th century America. Dr. Elizabeth O'Leary, an American art historian, earned both an MA and PhD from the University of Virginia. Last summer, she retired from our neighbors, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, after 14 years, 10 of which serving as associate curator of American art. Beth has also worked at Monticello, the Hunter Museum of American Art in Chattanooga, and the Rinalda House Museum of American Art in Winston-Salem. She has served as an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Richmond and as guest curator at Maymont House, where she developed the current Below Stairs exhibition about domestic service. And she has also taught one of our CUN class offerings, so she's a familiar face to those of us here at the VHS. In 2010, Beth was lead author of American Art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Among her other publications are From Morning to Night, Domestic Service in Maymont House and the Gilded Age South, and At Beck and Call, the representation of domestic servants in 19th century American painting. Her latest project, completed just this month, and she just gave a copy for the VHS collections, is a history of Richmond's Carillon neighborhood. So please join me in welcoming Beth O'Leary, who will speak to us today about Winslow Homer's Virginia. Thank you, Paul, and thank you to uh, the Virginia Historical Society uh, for the honor of participating once again in this distinguished banner lecture series. And I, it's especially exciting for me um, to contribute to your several lectures uh, touching on the Civil War and emancipation during the sesquicentennial years. Fittingly, Winslow Homer's visits to Virginia and his related drawings, prints, and paintings address both war and emancipation. And in our time together today, uh, we're gonna explore the ways that this extraordinary artist visually defined the Old Dominion for a Northern audience uh, in the 1860s and 70s. And in turn, we're going to see how Homer's travels to our state helped shape his changing approaches to picturing African Americans during these crucial transitional years. And then last, uh, we'll spend just a little bit of focused time looking at one particular painting, Homer's Army Teamsters, which is in the Paul Mellon Collection at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, as a telling example of the artist's evolving perceptions. A unique and extraordinary artist, Winslow Homer created some of the most compelling and enduring images of the 19th century. Um, we can't think of Homer without recalling his 1872 painting, Snap the Whip, with its raucous line of schoolboys running and enjoying the freedom of recess outside of the proverbial red schoolhouse. Or we might recall that Homer became a superb master of the watercolor medium. 
and he produced amazing images of approaching storms in the Caribbean or compelling visual essays of wilderness men like this guide on a lake in the Adirondack Mountains. And of course, many think of Homer's amazing seascapes created when the older artist retreated to a studio at Prout's Neck, Maine. And there he created paintings like this one from 1895. This is titled The Nor'easter, and it captures the powerful uh, splendor of the sea. And of course, these are just a little handful of the many masterworks created during Homer's long career. He died in 1910 at the age of 74, loved and revered in his own time as America's most celebrated artist. Then and now, few people recall that Homer started out that long artistic journey as an illustrator for popular magazines, or that it was as a war correspondent during the Civil War that he first put oil to canvas. When the Civil War fully commenced in the summer of 1861, Homer was only 25 years old. Uh, he had recently moved from his native Boston to pursue a career as a freelance illustrator in New York City. And there he had already gained some success in selling his sketches, um, particularly of current events, to various pictorial magazines. And these sketches, in turn, uh, were made into wood engravings for mass uh, commercial printing. And you're looking at young Homer here looking quite dapper and throughout his life he sported that wonderful mustache and sometimes um, he waxed the tips and you'll see a picture of that in a little bit. Even before relocating to uh, New York, Homer had the pleasure of seeing some of his drawings picked up by that city's prestigious Harper's Weekly news magazine. Uh, this one pictures a beautiful spring day on the Boston Common. His imagery wasn't always so lighthearted. In the tense, polarized years before the war, he also depicted political events. In his lithograph titled Arguments of Chivalry, he addresses one of the darker days in the history of the U.S. Congress. After delivering an anti-slavery speech in the spring of 1856, Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner of, um, of Massachusetts, I said that twice, um, was attacked by South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks, who beat him savagely with a cane until he lost consciousness. And, and boy, we, we think we have some uh, tough relations up there today. Above the image, Homer added a quote by Henry Ward Beecher. It says, the symbol of the North is the pin, the symbol of the South is the bludgeon. Now, at that time, Beecher, a Congregationalist minister in Brooklyn, was one of America's best-known orators and abolitionists. And you see Henry Ward Beecher here in a Matthew Brady photograph uh, from the late 1850s. He's seated at right with his equally famous father and sister, Lyman Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now the elder Beecher at center spearheaded the wave of evangelical fervor across the United States in the 1820s and 30s, uh, sometimes referred to as the Second Great Awakening. And years later, in 1851, his daughter published Uncle Tom's Cabin, 
that enormously influential novel that fueled anti-slavery sentiment in the decade before the Civil War. Young Homer had a special connection to the Beechers, as present-day historian Peter Wood has documented. Before Lyman Beecher relocated to Cincinnati in the 30s, Homer's parents attended his Hanover Street Church in Boston. And while there's no documentation of the Homer family being actively engaged in abolitionist activities, um, Homer came of age in Cambridge and Boston in the wake of this influence, and of course in the center of what became the anti-slavery sentiment in the United States. And through this early uncommissioned print, we gain a small glimpse of partisan sentiment in the 20-year-old artist. As a young illustrator in New York, Homer won the plum assignment from Harper's to produce several feature images, including cover stories of the newly elected um, president, Abraham Lincoln, and the inauguration ceremony held March 1861. The war began with the bombing of Fort Sumter a, a month later, and after its onset, Homer received a commission from Harper's to travel to the front as an artist correspondent, and it left you see the 1861 letter of introduction from the publishing firm that Homer carried as he traveled. And on the right, his temporary military pass um, made out in the spring of 1862 that allowed him to go through the lines to and from Virginia. Homer came to the front at least four times between 1861 and 1864 each visit bringing him to campaign sites in Virginia with the Army of the Potomac. And unlike some of the artists, Homer wasn't assigned particularly to a regiment or embedded in today's parlance. Instead, he would come uh, to observe for a month or two, produce hundreds of field sketches, and then return to New York to turn those images into engravings and later to paintings. And we can only wonder what the troops of McClellan's Army of the Potomac thought of the young city slicker who spent time uh, in their camp in 1861 and 62. And here a rather confident artist appears in Homer's own self-portrait made for a series of lithographic cards. And the series was uh, titled Life in Camp. The caption reads, Our Special, meaning Our Special Correspondent. In the caricature, he shows himself sharp and alert, as sharp as the, the ends of his hat and his pointy mustache. In April 1862, Homer arrived on the outskirts of Yorktown a month after the Union Army had laid siege to that small town. In its advance towards Richmond up the York Peninsula, the federal troops were halted by the Confederates who constructed miles of powerful earthworks in front of the city and then manned them with 60,000 troops. Well, un unable to dislodge this massive force, the Federals responded by laying siege to Yorktown, uh, surrounding it in, a, in an attempt to cut off its supplies. And this is a tactic, of course, not unlike uh, the one that would be used later at Petersburg. And during this three-month campaign, the northern troops never stopped working on their own entrenchments, and this was nasty business. Uh, the trenches filled with spring rainwater. They became infested with tidewater mosquitoes and wood ticks. 
there was little fighting uh, when uh, Homer came to join the army. Uh, most of the activity he saw came from digging. And of course, from sharpshooters who kept their eye trained on the distant enemy lines. And we'll see Homer's very detailed image of one of these riflemen in a moment. By late April, the Union Army uh, brought in its heavy guns and began shelling Yorktown. And to the disappointment of the restless federal troops, the Confederates re uh, retreated May 3rd uh, quietly and without a, a major fight. Homer left the front before the end of the siege, but not before he made scores of drawings. And while this campaign was not necessarily a bloody one, he returned to New York shaken and a little worse for wear. According to a letter written by his mother, he was not at all this jaunty figure that he uh, pictures in the cartoon. His mother wrote to a friend, Winslow went off to the war front of Yorktown and camped out about two months. He suffered much and was without food three days at a time, and all in camp either died or were carried away with typhoid fever. Plug tobacco and coffee were the staples. He came home so changed that his best friends did not know him. But all is well and right now. By late summer, Homer managed to complete several illustrations for Harper's, including this feature woodcut titled The Army of the Potomac, A Sharpshooter on Picket Duty. And it's a close-up view of a marksman at work. This fellow is propped up in the tree. His gun barrel rests on a branch, and he's looking intently through the scope. And with his canteen nearby, um, he's made himself comfortable for some time to come. Uh, he's, his job is to keep his sight trained where he expects the enemy to appear and then to pick him off. Homer was uh, fascinated by this specialized and deadly work, <clears throat> and he depicted sharpshooters several times. And it was during this time that Homer, up until then only an illustrator by trade, began experimenting with oil paint. His very first canvas, Sharpshooter, was based on his composition for the wood engraving. And you can see it's quite similar to that black and white illustration. However, with the addition of color, we get more of a sense of the way the rifleman was camouflaged by the thick pine needles and the shadows of the tree. One other subtle change from the print to the painting is the insignia on the cap of the sharpshooter. You're seeing the red clover leaf of the 1st Division, 2nd Corps, commanded by Colonel Francis Channing Barlow, who was, by the way, the Harvard classmate of Homer's older brother, Charles. And this close family connection is likely another reason that the artist enjoyed access to the front. Now, as an artist correspondent, Homer produced very few works that smacked of conventional romantic war images. You know, the heroic generals on fiery steeds, waving swords, or those long lines of infantry charging into the melee. Rather, instead, he tended to focus on the day-to-day -day life in camp with its simple recreation and its rough existence. Home Sweet Home, which you see here, was the first oil painting that Homer sent to public exhibition. And the painting's title, of course, comes from that popular song by John Howard Payne, Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. And um, Homer is showing here um, in the distance 
a small army band, so you could imagine that they are, are playing that tune. Homer's showing us uh, a glimpse of crude camp life, anything but a sweet home life, and we see a small fire on which a, a pot is boiling down here in the foreground. Um, the soldiers have uh, scavenged a few boughs of pine to provide additional shade to their low shelter tents. Uh, there are stakes on which they hang their possessions, like the haversack, and finally, the ever-present soldier's meal. Look at this detail. Two hardtack biscuits on a tin plate. Home Sweet Home was exhibited at New York's National Academy of Design in April 1863, and this is just, uh, was just a few days before General Hooker moved the Army of the Potomac across the Rappahannock River and towards Chancellorsville uh, to fee, uh, face bitter defeat. Now, young Homer navigated fairly easily between such somber uh, renderings to humorous caricatures for popular audiences. And here we see um, at center a poor hungry fellow uh, trying to eat his brick-like hardtack. Now these trade cards are among 24 small hand-colored lithographs uh, made for a series titled Life in Camp. And um, we saw the one earlier of, of the artist himself. These were printed uh, during the war by Homer's publisher friend, uh, Louis Prang. And these particular ones are among a dozen in the collection here at the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, left the card is titled, A Shell is Coming, and it pictures two foot soldiers who can only hope that the tree they're hiding behind will provide them enough cover. In the distance, we see two puffs of smoke, and this is um, visuals, uh, Homer's visual convention that signifies incoming shots from the enemy. At right, an unwelcome guest, and a curious army mule that pokes his head into a tent uh, to the surprise of its sleeping occupants. Earlier in 1863, Prang also commissioned artists to produce a series of six larger, more detailed lithographs. Uh, the portfolio titled Campaign Sketches is also here in the permanent collection. And they give more glimpses of camp life as the artist perceived it, and I'll show you a couple. Um, this one pictures soldiers of various ages uh, lining up uh, for a coffee call. And from Homer's experiences at the front, he includes uh, details for the folks back home, such as the distinctive Sibley tents in the background at right, and it left a supply wagon with untethered mules and someone's laundry strung out to dry. From his time with the troops in Virginia, Homer became intrigued with the African-American laborers who helped support the Union effort particularly the men who loaded, maintained, and drove those uh, large supply wagons. And here a couple of Teamsters are taking a, a break. They've hitched a ride on the back of a wagon. Uh, one's lighting up a pipe while the other still clutches his whip, this long strip of braided leather that the drivers referred to as the black snake. For the most part, and there are some exceptions, Homer's wartime imagery presented African Americans in a fairly direct manner without the kind of distorted stereotypes prevalent in popular illustration and literature. 
and at the front his most accessible models were the black civilians who labored in the Union camps as general laborers and cooks, laundresses, or teamsters, all generally referred to at the time as contrabands. And this term gained new meaning in the first year of the war when Southerners still laid claim to runaway slaves under the terms of the old Fugitive Slave Act. Major General Benjamin Butler, Butler first refused to send them back at Fort Monroe at Virginia's Hampton Roads. And then in August 1861, the US Congress declared that any property used by the Confederate military, including slaves, could be confiscated by the Union forces. And thousands of the so-called contrabands flooded the Union camps seeking freedom and also work. And whenever possible, the Army employed them, particularly the able-handed Teamsters who, whose job it was to handle the thousands of horses and mules. With the several visits uh, to the front, Homer well understood the crucial role that these drivers played in supplying food, water, equipment, and munitions. And moreover, he would have appreciated the skill with which the men drove the famously obstinate mules through the brambles and the thick mud. He returned to the subject of the Teamsters in the last uh, year of the war, and as we see, he'll consider them once again many years later. Just a few more glimpses at some of his field sketches, and here he's showing uh, us his perceptions of the um, camp wagons and some of the mules. Um, and he would use these images, and you'll see them again in future prints and paintings. For instance, the drawing of the mule in profile is likely the source for that unwelcomed guest uh, pictured in life in camp. Through 1863, Homer remained in New York, and he produced dozens of prints for Harper's and other illustrated magazines and he uh, produced several war-themed oil paintings. And when he returned to the front in the spring of 1864, he found a battle-tested and war-weary Army, Army of the Potomac now under the command of Ulysses S. Grant. On May 5th and 6th, the Union troops met Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in the dense woods near Culpeper Courthouse. The Battle of the Wilderness was intense and deadly with 17,000 casualties on the northern side alone. The armies disengaged only to face the bloodier and more costly battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse a few days later. In one of his rare images uh, that pictures actual combat titled Skirmish in the Wilderness, Homer shows us federal troops advancing and firing in the deep forest. Wounded comrades lay at their feet. Now this trip to Virginia is the least documented of the artist's travels, but according to Homer's own accounts, he witnessed some of the fighting and composed paintings from drawings that he labeled made on the spot. In returning to the front uh, a few months later, uh, in late summer, early fall, he once again joined Barlow's Second Corps, and he must have been shocked at the gaunt appearance of his old friend pictured at the upper left wearing a favorite checkered shirt. Since Homer saw him last at Yorktown, Barlow sustained wounds at the Battle of Antietam, 
and also at Gettysburg and recovered in time to take charge of his troops in April, uh, this time as a brigadier general. Homer's next trip uh, here uh, was in the late summer or early fall, uh, just in time to join Barlow at Petersburg where the Army of the Potomac had entrenched since June. In its renewed attempt to reach Richmond, this time from the south, the Union Army was stopped at this small city 23 miles away from the Confederate capital. And long before their arrival, the Southern Army had already laid 10 miles of trenches around the city's perimeter. And this, these aren't little ditches, these are big trenches, eight feet deep and 15 feet wide. And as at Yorktown, the Federal Army arrived to dig its own earthworks. And there on the outskirts of Petersburg, both armies sat for nearly 10 months in a vast maze of trenches, earth forts, and tunnels. For the troops, it was a hard and difficult existence. They first endured this scorching heat and dust of summer, then the mud and damp of the fall, followed by the freezing cold. And throughout this time, there was constant skirmishing and sharpshooting and shelling back and forth. And for the soldiers, the time passed uh, slowly, marked alternately with extreme boredom and then an exhausting series of unsuccessful charges at the enemy lines. And as you uh, recall, the most spectacular push came in the early weeks of the campaign when Pennsylvania miners secretly tunneled under the Confederate lines and packed the in uh, chamber with 320 kegs of gunpowder. The early morning explosion um, beneath the Confederate fortification certainly caught the Southerners by surprise, but in the confusion of the smoke and darkness, the Federal troops rushed forward only to find themselves trapped in the hole of the crater, and at the bottom they became the proverbial sitting ducks. And of course, when you visit the Petersburg battlefield today, you still see the remnants of the crater. After this fiasco, the Union and Confederate troops drew back to the original lines peeking at each other across the bare fields and keeping their heads down out of sight of the enemy uh, sharpshooters. And you see this in this wood engraving made from eyewitness sketches by Homer's Harper's colleague, Alfred Wode. Letters and diaries of the soldiers in the, living in the trenches give a clear picture of the conditions. Union soldier James Mitchell wrote in July 1864, if ever a country experienced the horrors of war, it is Virginia. Our lines and the rebel lines are within 50 yards of one another. From here, the rebels cut down the woods to give their artillery play to sweep us down. Their works are very strong. I was over at the front this morning, but didn't stay long. There was such heavy musketry fire going on. If you're to show your head above the rifle pits, you're a gone goose. Homer missed the ill-fated battle of the crater, but he arrived in Petersburg uh, to once again experience the full tedium of siege warfare. In this on-site sketch, he recorded the ravaged, defoliated landscape between the armies, which had mowed down every tree and every shrub to supply thousands of campfires and, of course, to provide a clear view of the enemy. Um, when you look at this notice, especially uh, this diagonal line, and then the occasional logs uh, poking out from the, the dirt beneath uh, in those earthworks. 
And you can see that he used this particular drawing of uh, the, that devastated landscape as the basis for uh, his painting that he titled Inviting a Shot Before Petersburg. This was completed in the fall of 1864, and it's another of Homer's uh, few paintings that directly addresses the horrors of war. It is also a rare imagined depiction of a Confederate trench. And here Homer pictures a lone figure silhouetted against a cloud-swept sky, and the foot soldier has jumped up on the top of the rampart to shout at the distant lines. And this impulsive gesture has attracted the notice of the enemy sharpshooters, and you can see two puffs of smoke uh, suggesting that the sniper's bullets are already on their way. Um, this is a defiant gesture, and indeed the painting took on an additional title in the 20th century. It's sometimes also called Defiance. At the same time, the war-savvy uh, war viewers of Homer's day would know that the soldier has put himself at mortal risk. Now, among the stranger details, Homer included a caricature of a black man among the men in the trenches. Uh, and as he did in earlier print about the songs of war, the artist likely introduced this figure as a cipher for the song Dixie. The theatrical minstrel player strums his banjo in accompaniment to the fatal dance macabre above him. Inviting a shot before Petersburg, painted in late 1864 when the momentum of the war was turning in favor of the North, um, is ultimately a death image. The clinch-fisted youth represents the hot-headed South, defiant yet self-destructive. In rejoining the Union troops at Petersburg, Homer once again en encountered the African-American civilians who worked for the Army, and among them the Teamsters that intrigued him uh, much earlier. And here we see such a group assembled for an 1864 photograph. This is also in the VHS collection here. This was taken at Cobbs Hill, Virginia, and it pictures several of the drivers who wear assorted bits of Union uniforms and hats, as do the men Homer pictured in his sketch at Petersburg of Teamsters at Rest. This drawing is now in the Paul Mellon collection at VMFA. Um, this image became the basis for a painting made in 1865 uh, that he titled The Bright Side. And here the artist depicts four men reclining on the ground, propping themselves against the white canvas wall of a Sibley tent, and they draw close together to take advantage of the shelter's sunniest side. And I know it's a little hard to see four men. You see the uh, three here, and then this fellow scooched down. You see his little keppy cap right there. Um, I wanted to be sure that you saw him as well. A fifth teamster stands above them, clenching a corncob pipe in his mouth, and his strangely disembodied head emerges between the tent flaps uh, to meet our eyes with the scrutiny of a self-appointed sentry, uh, sentry. And we get a sense from looking at this stern fellow um, that he's discouraging a curious ar artist or anyone else from that matter um, from coming too much closer. Homer's showing us also the trappings of the Teamsters trade. You see the supply wagons in the distance. 
the line of nearby draft mules for wh which they were responsible. And you might recognize these are based in part from his drawings in Yorktown. And he pictures the driver nearest holding the leather whip, which easily denotes his vocation, but also by having the black figure grasp the whip, an object that so often symbolized violence against enslaved people, the artist also suggests the man's latent strength and authority. When Homer painted The Bright Side in early 1865, he was aware that African Americans waited not only for the lull of the campaign to cease, but also the ultimate outcome of the war. With Lincoln's announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier, and the subsequent shift in military advantage, the drivers would have been indeed warmed by the, quote, bright side of unfolding events. In 1866, just after the end of the war, Homer revisited the theme, and, it, and he created the second canvas titled Army Teamsters, which you can see today on view at VMFA in the Paul Mellon Galleries. And he's giving us the same composition and figures, but he expanded the scene horizontally, showing us more of the encampment to the left and bringing in additional figures of the mules. And at right, to visually balance the busy details on the opposite side, he added the bright red clover leaf insignia of Barlow's second corps to the side of the tent, and inexplicably, the head of a single mule popping out from the canvas edge. This is an odd visual echo of the head of the standing teamster at center. Homer's most famous Civil War image, Prisoners from the uh, Front, was also set at Petersburg, and it was produced in 1866, following the end of the war. And it shows a quiet confrontation between three Confederate prisoners and a Union officer. Uh, the figure of the young general at right is actually a portrait of Brigadier General Francis Barlow, and you see his second corps flag waving in the background at right. Across a small distance, and that really creates a lot of tension between those uh, figures, are the three prisoners brought forward by a pair of guards. And although their appearances are highly individualized, um, these are much less portraits than studies in Confederate stereotypes that were appearing in the popular press during the war, including, as one reviewer pointed out, the dashing, long-haired Virginia Cavalier uh, who stands at center. Now, admired for his bold, direct style, um, Homer's uh, painting gained widespread approval when he exhibited at the National Academy in New York, and the following year, this painting and The Bright Side were selected for the American section of the prestigious Paris Universal Exposition. Homer emerged from the uh, Civil War as a fairly new painter, but amazingly, one who also enjoyed uh, growing international acclaim. He gained a reputation for objectivity, a notion underscored by a critic for the London Art Journal who wrote, these works are real. The artist paints what he has seen and known. In fact, uh, uh, though Homer worked in a very naturalistic style, his imagery was quite subjective. Constructs carefully made from assorted sketches 
and oftentimes animated with symbols and metaphor. After spending 10 months in France, he returned to New York where he focused on new themes, new styles, and new media. In the 1870s, though, he also continued to ponder the developments in the South, no doubt it epitomized in his mind by his experiences in Virginia. At the beginning of the decade, he addressed several crucial national flashpoints that occurred between 1860 and 70 in this large uh, engraving published by Harper's. At center is the large wheel of time with this capped figure of Lady Liberty uh, right there in the hub, and beside her, a young mother who swings a baby around uh, to mark each year of the traumatic decade. And there's several vignettes. Uh, uh, he includes uh, the USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia signaling a new age of iron and steel. At top, the martyred Lincoln issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. To the right, the armies who've laid down their weapons and returned to productive work in civilian life. And at bottom right, signifying the new decade, he pictures images of children, white and black, learning in school together side by side. Now the Northern press, including Harper's Weekly, closely followed the developments in the South, the military occupation, the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and the gradual readmission of the former Confederate states to the Union. And in the years immediately following the war, perceptions were shaped by the scores of photographs and illustrations uh, emerging, including those from Richmond, and I'm showing you uh, a couple here at top, is Alexander Gardner's 1865 uh, photograph entitled Freedmen, and they're standing uh, near Haxel's Mill. And beneath that, an image of the city's so-called contraband camp where the newly emancipated refugees take shelter in the Army's now decommissioned Sibley tents. Richmond was also featured in various uh, news magazines, uh, uh, feature articles, including the cover of Harper's, published May 25, 1867, and it's entitled Educating the Freedmen, and it shows St. Philip's Church, the school for colored children at bottom. Homer, as Homer maintained an interest in the fate of the post-bellum South with its newly emancipated black citizens, he could find no better resource for information than the religious leader and former abolitionist Henry Ward Beecher. And you remember he quoted him early on in his career. And during the war, Beecher formed what would become the American Freedmen's Aid Commission in his Brooklyn church. And in the post-war years, this non-denominational organization grew into a large umbrella agency under which various societies provided relief work to displaced African Americans. Um, when the federal government formed its own Freedmen's Bureau in 1868, Beecher's organization became the private arm, um, uh, partnering to help send food and aid, and especially teachers, to southern cities, and this included Richmond and Petersburg. These efforts were described uh, in a progressive interdenominational magazine called The Christian Union, owned and managed by Beecher after 1870. And the bewhiskered gentleman that you see on the right is the Reverend Lyman Abbott, who served as its editor. 
another lifelong advocate for African-American education and equality, also a, another famous orator, Lyman Abbott would eventually take Beecher's place in the pulpit at Plymouth Church, and he was an officer in the American Freedmen's Aid Commission. Homer knew each of these progressive leaders through family and work connections. In fact, um, Abbott was also an editor at Harper's Weekly. He was also associated uh, with Lawson Valentine, who was a friend of both men. Uh, Valentine uh, was described by Lyman Abbott as a congenial spirit to Beecher and himself. Lawson Valentine was also a friend of the Homer family. He was a neighbor and grew up with them in their earlier days in Cambridge. Uh, Valentine was an energetic entrepreneur who f uh, founded a highly profitable varnish company. And the main secret to his success was hiring Charles Homer, um, who was Winslow's older brother. Uh, Charles was uh, Valentine's chief chemist. And when Charles developed the perfect formula, it made them both quite wealthy, and he was named partner in Valentine's firm. In 1880, Valentine also founded the esteemed publishing house Houghton Mifflin and its subsidiary Riverside Press. And after a few years, Lawson Valentine would replace Henry Ward Beecher as the controlling shareholder and owner of the Christian Union magazine. Significantly, another of Lawson Valentine's many interests in these post-war years was Winslow Homer himself. Beginning in the early 1870s, Valentine invited Homer to join him and his family at their rented summer home in Walden, New York. And as their friendship deepened and Homer enjoyed this rural retreat, the artist commenced his now famous series of oil paintings and watercolors of youngsters in the countryside, including the iconic Snap the Whip and this painting, Boys in a Pasture, uh, from 1874. In turn, Valentine became Homer's most loyal and enthusiastic patron, acquiring over the next several years close to 40 watercolors and oil paintings for his personal collection. This, by the way, gave um, Homer enough financial security that he at last did away with his work as an illustrator and he could focus on painting. In the mid-1870s, Homer decided to return to Virginia and witness the post-war changes for himself. Um, now, piecing together just when and how many times the artist returned to Virginia and particularly the area around Petersburg remains open to debate. But scholars have assembled just enough uh, evidence, the little bits, including information provided by Homer's own brothers, to suggest that he likely made two visits between 1875 and 1877. Homer would have taken the train down to Petersburg. The rails had been repaired long before. And he would have stayed at the Jarrett Hotel. You see a picture of it here on bottom right. Um, then owned by Colonel James Platt of the 3rd Vermont Infantry. Now the northerner purchased the place with cold hard cash on April 8, 1865, even as the troops were mustering to march west to Appomattox. Now during his stay, Homer would learn that reconstruction had ended in Virginia five years earlier in 1870 when the state 
uh, was restored to the Union after complying with the provisions of the Reconstruction Acts. The first military district was abolished. The occupation had ended. The government's freedmen camps had closed as well, and the private aid had all but vanished in Petersburg as well. What did remain in the city to show for all of the post-war effort was a fairly well-organized system of free public schools established separately for whites and blacks, but all shakily funded in the national financial downturn um, by a municipal bond. Remember, this is just after the panic of 1873. And last, Homer, uh, in returning to Petersburg, likely discovered that the local townspeople were a bit touchy about outsiders. They had recently, re they had recently elected a conservative government um, after seven years of radical Republican control um, of the city by the so-called carpetbaggers, including the Yankee proprietor of the hotel. Like many tourists from the North uh, and the South, Homer no doubt traveled to see what remained of the battlefield and walk along the trenches once more. Before arriving, he would have been reminded of the well-known sites by the ubiquitous stereoscopic photo cards published in the North. And on arrival, he would have been aided by a handy tourist map. Uh, you can see at the top, it's published by the Jarrett Hotel, and uh, VHS has a version of this here in the collection. Homer's main goal in returning to Petersburg was to observe and sketch its black inhabitants. And in his usual manner, he made numerous drawings to carry back North to his studio. And according to stories related by his brothers, he had a few very tense encounters with some of Petersburg's white citizenry that became angry when the taciturn New York painter seemed to have preferred the company of the field workers to theirs. Nevertheless, Homer persevered and returned home energized. And between 1876 and 78, he produced some of the most powerful images of African-Americans ever created in 19th century America. And some of them became his most critically acclaimed paintings. And we only have uh, time to look at a few, including this one, one of my favorites, Cotton Pickers, which uh, pictures two statuesque freed women who pause momentarily from their labors in a vast cotton field. And yes, there were cotton fields in Petersburg. It was a major cotton market, and in fact, at the northernmost point of the cotton belt. Um, here, in picturing one of the most American of subjects, Homer shows the influence of his travels to France, where he studied the Barbizon painters and their ennobling images of field workers. And you might bring to mind images like uh, Millet's The Gleaners. In this canvas titled Sunday Morning in Virginia, he addresses the issue of education. Within a rustic cabin, a young woman, perhaps the older sister, perhaps a local teacher, she could be both, reads aloud from a large Bible, and several children huddle closely to listen and also look at the text. The poignant fig figure at far right is the grandmother, who listens with a far-off glance. This elder, unlike the younger 
post-emancipation generation can recall her days of enslavement and the strict prohibition against literacy. Homer's visit from the old mistress provides his most direct exploration of the altered relations between the newly freed slaves and the white families they once served. And he here, if you notice, he's using the same compositional format of prisoners from the front with that dramatic gap of space amplifying the rift between adversaries. As the old white matron enters the cabin, she finds no warm response, only the unsmiling glances of the black women. Most telling is the figure of the woman at the left who no longer feels obligated to stand in the presence of the old mistress. Now, after Homer exhibited these paintings in various exhibitions in the US and abroad, he was universally praised for his strong, dignified renderings of black subjects. As the New York Evening Express put it in April of 1880, Mr. Homer is one of the few men who has been successful and painted the Negro character without exaggerating or without caricature. Nevertheless, as strong and monumental as the, these paintings are, they all carry a melancholy note. Homer completed Visit from the Old Mistress in 1876, precisely at the time that the United States was celebrating its centennial, but it was also celebrating its reconciliation as the last Southern state entered the uh, Union, official reconstruction was over that year. But in Petersburg, he had seen for himself that the idealistic goals of reconstruction articulated in all the, the reformist tracts that he had read were unrealized, and the issues facing the black, black population remained unresolved. Now, the one big surprise that awaited Homer during these years was the discovery that his friend and pat patron, Lawson Valentine, had acquired Army Teamsters. And you'll recall this is the larger uh, second version of the bride side. This was a rare instance when Valentine purchased a Winslow Homer painting from someone other than the artist himself. And there were two owners of this painting before Valentine. And it was is also the only artwork that he acquired in his collection with the Civil War theme. Now to date, Valentine's acquisitions had been either commissions, um, he did uh, get Homer to paint portraits of his wife, and here you see his portrait um, of his two daughters, but very rare Homer uh, did portraits, um, but these are some. Or Valentine uh, purchased the lyrical watercolors of shepherdesses uh, that he bought when Homer visited him and his family at their new summer estate, uh, Houghton Farm. Beginning in the summer of 1876, and for several years thereafter, Homer enjoyed Valentine's continued hospitality at this new rural retreat in Mountainville, New York. This is close to the Hudson River and just a two-hour trip uh, from Manhattan. The farm itself was unlike any place in the country. Now, alongside Valentine's prodigious activities with his varnish and publishing businesses, and not to mention his philanthropic giving and support, Valentine established at Houghton Farm America's first privately run 
Agricultural Research Station. And the Houghton Farm environment obviously suited Homer, and during uh, several visits in the mid to late 1870s, he was phenomenally prolific there, creating a significant series of about 150 watercolors, uh, most of them featuring local children dressed as shepherdesses and shepherds, and today extremely highly valued. And in this nurturing place, one can imagine the conversations between the two New Englanders as they discussed Homer's recent travels back to Virginia and his subsequent paintings of black subjects. And also they looked together at a painting that the artist hadn't seen in a dozen years. By this time, the uh, almost identical canvas, The Bright Side, had been included in several exhibitions and garnered many reviews. While generally lauded for its naturalism, many of the reviewers veered towards racial stereotyping in discussing its content. Several found humor in the recumbent Teamsters commenting on the perceived laziness of the black race. Some accustomed to the theatrical antics of blackface minstrels found stage-like entertainment in the quote, comical darky with the pipe poking his head through the tent opening. One writer even described a quote, grinning, uh, grinning countenance on the uh, face of this figure, which in fact has no <clears throat> smile at all. Now mindful of the, such comments, Homer probably looked at army teamsters with fresh eyes and new ideas, and certainly with the new sensitivities about race and representation gained from his recent Virginia travels. And as a result, he likely resolved to reduce or remove any overtly comic details. The most obvious was the braying mule at right. Now, if none of the human figures were grinning, the animal with its open mouth could be perceived as laughing at the resting teamsters and also inviting the viewer to find humor in the scene as well. In looking at the canvas, Homer must have recalled the perceived hee-haw that he introduced for comic effect in his earlier print. And now he could see that there was an additional unwanted guest, this one thrusting his head into the painting. And as a result, the mule vanished. <laughs> Hidden beneath a layer of overpainting, the jaunty red insignia of Barlow's Second Corps was covered up as well, leaving a, a quiet expanse and giving the painting a more universal quality. Now we don't know whose decision it was to erase the mule and the insignia, the artist, the patron, or both, but we do know that the painting had been altered by 1889 when Lawson Valentine took the canvas to the lithographers at his company, the Riverside Press, and had it replicated as a chromolithograph. The inscription on the bottom margin of the print, and it's difficult to see here, reads, compliments of Lawson Valentine, and he distributed these prints to clients and customers and friends and family members. Proud of the painting and proud of his friend, uh, Valentine added an inscription on the back stating that it was a facsimile from the original painting by Winslow Homer. 
Army Teamsters remained in the hands of Lawson Valentine's descendants for another 100 years before it was acquired by Paul Mellon in 1990. And then it entered the VMFA collection as his gift three years later. During that century, the Valentine Company eventually became the Valspar Company, uh, the multi-billion uh, dollar business that sells premium paint worldwide. And today, true to the values of its founder, the Lawson Valentine Foundation awards grants to organizations addressing issues of environmental justice and racial reconciliation. Ironically, for this family that made its fortune in varnish and paint, there's been a question for many years about the quality of the overpaint on the canvas. And through the decades, Homer scholars have consistently commented on the growing translucence of the covering layer, which reveals the clear outline of the mule's head. The image has proven obstinate as a mule, uh, which you can see as the pentimento uh, showing through um, in this photograph made several years ago. Now, on careful examination, the VMFA Conservation Department determined a few years ago that the painting had undergone more than one campaign of overpainting in the 20th century. Noting the problematic nature and the discoloration of the overpaint, and determining that the last application had been done much later than Homer's era, they recommended removing it entirely. <laughs> and this was done. And since then, only a few astute visitors to the Mellon Galleries have noted the change. Um, so for now, at least, you too can pop next door and see Army Teamsters cleaned and restored to its original concept, a composition not seen for nearly 120 years. On receiving future input from key Homer scholars, the museum will weigh the next steps for the canvas. Will this be the mule's last laugh? <laughs> uh, to be continued. But at present, we learn from this important revelation. We now know what was covered up, and that knowledge gives us additional understanding of this extraordinary individual who experienced and pictured challenging times, clearly through Homer's visits to Virginia during the war, and later to witness the effects of Reconstruction, he grew in stature, both as an artist and also as a man. Thank you very much. wondered where the painting of the uh, crashing waves is now. Who owns that oh, painting? Oh, the Nor'easter? Gosh, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't know. It could be at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, and if I'm wrong, I'm so sorry. Um, but there, yeah, I'm sorry. I, 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 I can't place all of his paintings, uh, by the way. We have when, one question when Homer was a, uh, an illustrator and he's submitting his work back to Harper's, yeah. 
did he provide any contextual narrative? And if so, how would you describe his writing? Um, he, di he did not, other than uh, captions. And sometimes the captions, and you saw in the, uh, his review of the decade of 1860 to 70, are sometimes little um, verses or, or poems. But we're not confident those are Homer's. You know, he was working in tandem with the writers at Harper's. But what is really interesting, too, um, is to look at Homer's illustrations in the context of the articles around them. Uh, for instance, he did an amazing illustration I, I didn't show of an imagined uh, scene in a Confederate trench where uh, the black uh, laborers are uh, facing bombardment and they're being coerced to stay in place by a Confederate officer with a sword. Now that's interesting in itself, but it also appeared um, on the same page with the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so um, it's always um, interesting to look at Homer's illustrations not as free-floating, but in the context of how they're presented uh, with the text that Harper's was um, uh, presenting that particular week. Homer didn't leave us a whole lot of writing. He, he was intentionally resistant uh, to being interviewed, and he told his uh, biographer early on, he said, well, I'm, I'm not being difficult, but it's really nobody's business what I think and what I'm doing. And so it, it makes it so challenging to work on, uh, with Homer because you have to look at other people's diaries and letters, a few of his letters to his dealers, and listen to, um, look at that early biography that, uh, that was done after Homer died and the brothers are contributing. But um, he's, he's a reticent individual, and uh, it, it causes, causes us all consternation when we, we work on him. Uh, what's this Mr. Valentine, any relation to the Richmond Valentines? He, he was not. Um, the other kind of curious thing, he married Lucy Houghton, and he named Houghton Farms for it. And then, of course, he goes into partnership with George Houghton for Houghton Mifflin Publishing. And so, you know, I spent a, quite a bit of time with Ancestry.com and then finally found someone at Houghton Mifflin and said, oh, no, they're not related at all. So. Um, <laughs> There you go. <laughs> One more final question? Just join me in thanking Okay. Thank you. Thanks.